I would encourage you to be turning in your Bibles or on your phones or whatever it is that you use uh, to the book of Ezra chapter 3. But before we go there, I'd like to read a selection from the book of Hebrews. And the reason I chose this is I believe that it demonstrates that the passage we're going to see in Ezra is very relevant to New Testament believers in Jesus today. And so if you want to follow along with me for my scripture reading, I am in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." As we turn to the book of Ezra, I've been preaching through this book because Ezra describes scattered people gathering and rebuilding. And I think it not only speaks to the moment that we're experiencing as a nation, but it speaks to the history that we have as a church. The title of this series is God's People Revived and Rebuilt. And I believe that God can revive us and God can rebuild us. And I'm praying that he does as we seek him. Last week, 
I talked about the very first thing that the people did as they came back from Babylon was they built the altar. And that might seem like a strange choice, but God's people had been redeemed in ancient times from slavery and sin when their sins were covered by the blood of the Lamb. And they continued to offer sacrifices both to atone for their sins and to remember God's ancient salvation. And today, the church is the people of God who are forgiven through the blood of Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. Christians, church people, are not perfect. But we do believe that through the blood of Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins. And you cannot be part of God's people unless you first trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And I don't know where some of you are at. Maybe you've come and you're on the fence and you feel like, man, it's nice to be part of a group of people. It's nice to be part of people that love each other and have fun together. But that's not what the church is primarily. That might happen later. That might happen secondarily. But first, we come to God through Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And all of us approach God through that sacrifice that Jesus made. The blood of Jesus creates the church. And the blood of Jesus unites the church. And that's what makes us different from every other organization or club or religion. We believe that the only true source of unity that crosses every line that might divide us, whether it's age or gender or race, the only true source of unity that we have is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we continue to remember the sacrifice of Jesus every time we gather through little things like gathering on Sunday when he rose from the dead. And also we continue to offer ourselves daily in service to God and in one another. And we bring sacrifices of praise. As the people in Ezra's day offered sacrifices for their sins, they began a project to rebuild the temple, which was so much more than a building It was a symbol of God's presence among them. And they built it so that they could worship God and experience all of his blessings. And today, we as the people of God, for those who have trusted in Christ, are called to build the church of God. Not a building, but a people. And I believe that there's no greater joy in this life than drawing close to God and being part of a people where God is worshipped and served. And so today, our text in Ezra chapter 3 talks about working, talks about worshipping, and it talks about weeping. And before we go there, I want to ask you this. What is it about weddings that make people cry? What is it about weddings that make people cry? And I'm not talking about people that cry at any little thing that's slightly sentimental. I've seen big, burly, frightening men like my father-in-law tear up at a wedding. What is it that on a day full of joy, there's a strange mixture of sorrow? I think the reason is sometimes when something good and new and beautiful is starting and beginning, so many things that are also good 
are lost and ending at the exact same time. The first time that I was aware of this, in so many ways, I I did not think about things until I was a little bit older in life. The first time I was aware of this was actually my sister Naomi's wedding day. I was 19 years old when she was married, and I'd come home from New York where I was attending college, and I had put zero thought into her day. In fact, some of my friends were like, hey, what did you get her for a wedding gift? And I said, a wedding gift? Uh, I was not a very thoughtful person, and I don't say that proudly. But as she walked down the aisle, for the first time, I was struck that when she was married, she was going to move to the other side of the country, and I wouldn't see her more than once or twice a year at the most. We weren't particularly close at that time, but I felt a deep sense of loss, and I was shocked to find tears splashing down my face. When I was married, 10 years ago, Jared, my brother-in-law, was eight. And we've got pictures from our wedding of him and Lauren sitting on the floor at our reception, just bawling their eyes out because they knew that Lauren wasn't going to go back to their house at the end of the night. And Jared felt like he was losing his big sister. And just a few months ago, I was in my study here at the church listening to a Stephen Curtis Chapman song about dancing with his little girl at different stages in her life. And Rosie is four. And I was tearing up thinking about the day that she's going to move out and one day she's going to grow up and not be my little girl forever and ever. And so on a wedding day, while something good and beautiful is beginning and it's full of joy and happiness, Some really precious things are ending and it's hard to let go. And that's what happens in our text in Ezra today. God is doing something good and something amazing, but many people are looking back on a time when things seemed even better and they openly weep for all that's been lost and their sorrow mixes with the joy in the present in a strange way that can be okay, but could also cause division and problems and it did for them. And the people of God in Ezra's day struggled to have unity as some were looking backward and others were looking forward. But they needed to be together in order to actually build the temple. And I think that we at First Baptist Church of Holly can learn from them. Church, I believe that God is working here. I believe that it is possible that our greatest days are ahead of us and not behind us. But many... Many of you can remember times that were truly great. And in some sense, you might weep for what is lost and what is difficult now. But if we are going to be used by God, we need to be united in this present moment. That doesn't mean it's wrong to grieve any more than you would say it's wrong to weep at a wedding. Paul says in Romans 12, 15, all Christians are called to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. So we celebrate what's good and beautiful and new and we weep for the things that are lost, that are no longer with us. So I've entitled my message today, Working, Worshiping, and Weeping 
And it's my prayer that this message and this passage of scripture would help us as a church to be united for the work that God has called us to do here in Holly and the work that we are called to support around the world. So my text this morning is found in Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 8. I want to talk about how they were united in work. So in Ezra chapter 3 verse 8, says, now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. You can see a couple of things from these two verses. You can notice the way that they are organized first. They are following God's instructions about who should lead the project. The Levites are in charge of temple worship because God gave them that responsibility. And so they supervise the project. They had been given the responsibility to teach the people of God what the word of God said. And very literally, they were given a blueprint for how to build the building of the temple. And they had to follow the instructions both to purify the materials and to purify the people so that they could enjoy the presence of God among them. And you might say, well, we don't have a literal blueprint for building a building. We're not given this specific command, but we are given the word of God to know what it means to live as the people of God in purity and holiness, just like the book of Hebrews talked about. We don't come together as a church so that we can have fun. Primarily, we come together to worship the God who saved us. And not only that, the way that we come really matters. The writer of Hebrew urged his readers to lay aside every weight that slowed their race and every sin beset them. And those instructions are for us. If we want to come together and serve the community of Holly as a church, our purity personally and corporately matters. We lay aside weights that prevent us from serving, weights that might make us too busy to serve. Things that might not be wrong, but that hinder our dedication to the Lord. And we lay aside sins that make us impure, that make our worship unacceptable. And we can only do that as we are taught by the word what is right and true and beautiful. And as we are warned by the word what is sinful and immoral and wrong. If we are going to build the church, we need to be united under the word of God, taught the word of God in unity. Not only do you see their commitment to follow the, the structure that God had given as the Levites take responsibility to lead this project, but they also had leaders of the tribes of Judah. Now, there's no king at this time, but these are the leaders of the city of Jerusalem. And so they locally worked with their small little government so that as a city, they were able to support the project. And what I think that partly implies for us is that no church should ever be closed off from the community around it. We should have an outward 
focus so that we are eager to know the people that we live with, eager to be involved in the things that happen in our community so that we can spread the hope of Jesus to every corner here in Holly. And I know that our missionaries have the same heart to have that outward focus all over the world. Primarily, our church is not about us. It's about Jesus Christ and spreading the hope and love that we receive from God through Christ around the world. But most importantly, you can see in these verses that they were completely united. It says all who had come to Jerusalem were involved in this project. All of them listened to the teaching of the Levites. All of them put these things in practice. It was not considered the job of a few professional priests to build the temple, but all of the people worked together on the project. And in the beginning, this was their highest priority. They were all dedicated to the work. And we'll see in a moment that they had reasons for discouragement and they faced opposition from outside the community and later inside the community. That We're told about that throughout the rest of the book of Ezra. But it begins with a unified focus to build. And I believe it's the same with us. I think many people want to be part of what God is doing, but we need to be united if we are going to grow. We need to be committed to learning together what the word of God says so that his word is our guide. We need dedicated leadership for the future. And so I would ask each of you today, would you pray that God would give us great leaders for the future of our church for the decades to come? Would you give us would you pray that God would give us a great commitment to unity so that together we can all build his church? In their unity, they worked to lay the literal foundation of the temple. And as they saw what God was doing among them, their work led to their worship because they knew that God was present among them and working. And so you can read about their worship in verses 10 through 11. Scripture says in Ezra chapter 3, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The foundation of the temple was a cause for joy. They were trusting that when God lived among them, as he promised to do, that they would have victory over their enemies, that they would have abundant crops and big families full of joy. If you read through Exodus and Leviticus, you discover that they had a regular schedule of huge community-wide parties that could last for weeks on end. You can imagine camping trips. You can imagine barbecue. You can imagine things that are very similar to what we enjoy. And they trusted that God would provide rain for their crops, that they would eat good food and drink great drinks as they celebrated the presence of God among them, as they celebrated the peace that God blessed their community with. So they saw the laying the foundation of the temple as an occasion for great joy because they were putting God first in all that they did. 
They saw it as a sign of the continuation of God's blessing. And you can see that they are careful to follow God's instructions for how they worship. They don't look around at the people who had been living in Israel while they were gone and say, what are some new ways that we can adapt and bring into our worship? What are different things that we should try? You know, things are different now. No, they they went back to the things that David had written 500 years before they were alive. And they learned how priests had to dress and they learned how musicians served in the worship of God. And they were guided by the word of God in all that they did. And they sang this song, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout. Now pause for just a second. They are affirming the steadfast love of God after they have spent 70 years in exile. After they have seen people killed violently because God disciplined their nation. They're not questioning the love of God because they have experienced the discipline of God. They are affirming the steadfast faithfulness of God and hoping for the future because they believe that God has not changed and that God will bless him as they put him first and as they seek him. And that is our hope. They are led to worship because they trust in the promises of God. And if we are going to be united in building the church together, we need to be united in worship together. But as we'll see Their joy is strangely mixed with sorrow. So while they are united in work and united in worship, they begin to be divided in weeping. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. Scripture says, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. When does sorrow become sinful? I've said there's, there's nothing wrong with missing good things that are past. But imagine someone who's so sad at a wedding that they put a stop to the whole affair. Let it be immoral. They wouldn't be looking towards what was good and what was beginning. They would only be looking towards what was being lost. And no sane, kind, loving person would ever tell a dad not to cry when he gives his daughter away. But a good dad is going to put his daughter first and look towards the future. He's going to celebrate what's new even as he grieves his personal loss. In fact, some of what he's going to celebrate as being new is he's going to look forward to an even bigger family and greater blessings as he says yes to something that means he's saying no to something. There was nothing wrong with their weeping But the problem was that it began a division that eventually hindered the work. And in the same way, I believe that there's nothing wrong with celebrating our rich history and our past. And there's nothing wrong even missing the past. 
But if we fail to serve God in the present, or if we fail to trust him for the future, then something is deeply wrong. And to guard us from that type of division, we need to ask for just a second, why were they weeping? What were they missing? And there are a few things, if you read through the scriptures, you know about their sorrow. First, they were weeping because they had experienced the discipline of God. The reason the people of Israel had been in exile living in Babylon 900 miles from Jerusalem is that their ancestors, their grandfathers, and their great-grandfathers had forsaken God's laws and they had ignored his clear word. They had chosen to worship the idols of their day, and though God had warned them through the prophets and had been patient and again and again pleaded with them to repent, they did not believe him or listen to his warning. And our passage in Hebrews this morning has a mixture of encouragement to press on after Jesus, as well as a warning that God still disciplines his people and that discipline is painful. In fact, the writer warns that if we harden ourselves so that we do not repent, we may find a day when we cannot repent at all and we discover that we are permanently left outside of God's blessings. If that seems frightening, I'd encourage you to read all of Hebrews chapter 11 and 12, or for that matter, read all of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews gives great hope in Jesus and great warnings for turning away from Jesus. And the ways that people turn away from Jesus, not always a denial of truth. Sometimes you deny truth by the way you live rather than what you say you believe. And so Hebrews gives us great hope in Jesus, but it gives us great warnings for unfaithfulness. And the church needs both. The people in Ezra's day knew and understood the pain of being unfaithful. They had lost two generations of people. They lost the temple where they worshipped God. They lost the presence of God himself. And it's true that God was starting new, something new among them in Ezra's day. But the discipline that they had lived through had hurt. The way that God had disciplined them. The fact that God warns his people that he will still discipline them is a warning for us. And I would encourage you to examine your heart and ask questions like, are you sold out for God? Is he first in your life? The idolatry of God's people is always deadly and costly. And so I want to urge each of us to be humble before God and to put him first in our lives. Be brutal as you look at your schedule and think, do I put God first in my day every day? These people wept because Discipline hurt. And it's my heart as a pastor to spare us that type of discipline by asking you to examine your heart now and to put God first now before we experience discipline as a church. Part of the reason they wept was they had experienced God's discipline. Part of the reason they wept is they remembered better days. It says that the old men who had seen the first house, the first temple, wept with a loud voice because compared to Solomon's temple, the new temple was not going to be that special. And they were forgetting that that wasn't exactly the point. The point of the temple was the presence of God, not the beauty of the building. If you read the prophet Haggai, who ministers during this time, Haggai chapter 2 verse 3 
God is speaking to them and says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. You know, we can pine for the glory days. We can look back and be discouraged because things are harder now than perhaps you remember them a couple of decades ago. But God is among us and God is with us. The point is not how God blessed in the past. The point is how God will bless us as we seek him now. So partly they remember better days and they are grieved because what they're building doesn't seem as full of glory, but they're blessed with the presence of God. They're also grieved because they are few in number. God had warned his people that When they went into captivity, only a few of them would return, and it happened exactly as he said. If you read the book of Exodus, when they were rescued out of Egypt, there were 600,000 households, probably somewhere around 2 million people, who made the trip from Egypt to Israel. But now, when God rescued his people from Babylon... Only 50,000 households returned, less than a tenth of the first exodus. And it wasn't because God was any less great. It was because it was part of the discipline that he had told them about when they chose to reject his word and ignore his clear commands. He had told them that when he brought back the remnant, that it would be few in number, but that wasn't the point. His presence was among them and he was working and he was with them. And I want to say real clearly, if if you look through our old church records, we've got a furnace room with a file cabinet full of them. You can see days when our church had more numbers. It's hard not to see that our church used to be larger. In fact, I'm going to pull a name some of you haven't thought about in a while, but uh, under Harry Parker, half a century ago, he served from 1949 to 1959. Our church boasted 300 people in attendance for Sunday school. 25 years ago, 300 was not an uncommon number between the multiple services that were held on a given Sunday. And today, by comparison, we are few in number. But being few in number now does not mean that God is not at work. Friends, I pray that our church does grow in numbers. I want us to have an outward focus. I want us to be a joyful, growing fellowship. I pray that God builds his church. But more important than a large, happy crowd is humble trust in God and faithfulness to his word. Our church has endured some hard things recently, but I believe that God will bless us as we seek him. And so the question is, what do we do? How do we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? How do we unite to build? Well, I've got just a few things that I think are in the text that I think would help us. First, I believe we build by learning what the Bible says about being a church. I'd like to ask each of you as church members to make a greater commitment to know the word of God well. 
If we are going to be faithful as a church, we need to know what God has said about being a church. God has given us books like the book of Acts, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, 1st Corinthians, Ephesians. We have a wealth of information about what the church should be like. And I want to call our church to go back to the basics. Let's see how God designed us to function. Let's follow the word of God. Our passage says that they worshipped following the directions of David, king of Israel. They were careful to do what the word of God commanded them to do. And I believe that we must do the same. So very personally, I would like to ask you to read through a book like 1 Timothy. Read through a book like 1 Corinthians. In a few months, I hope to preach through 1 Timothy. Because I believe that we as a church need to wrestle with what does it look like to be the people of God the way God describes Second, not only do we need to learn what the Bible says about being a church and humble ourselves under the word, they built by worshiping together. And I say that because it doesn't just mean attending a service, although that's part of it. It ought to be a priority to worship together in person as we are able. But also, they humbly prayed together. They humbly served together. And church, we do that by bearing each other's burdens. It's hard to do that when you just attend a service and don't talk and hear the burdens on someone else's heart. We need to build a deeper community so that we can pray together and strengthen each other. A commitment to prayer is something that we desperately need. And finally, we build just by spending time together, not just among friends, Because that ensures that the community stays inward. But by intentionally making new friends. Perhaps you're here this morning. And as you think about the past 20, 30, 40, or 50 years. Perhaps you have a lot to grieve. But what I'd like to ask you. Is to commit to building anyway. Will you rejoice with those who rejoice? Will you be like the father on his daughter's wedding day that gives the bride away and dances with her? Will you celebrate what's new and what's happening now at our church even as you miss things that are past? Perhaps you're here and you're young and you have nothing to grieve. And if that's you, I would ask, would you be willing to weep with those who weep? Would you learn from those who have gone before, who can celebrate good things and have wisdom to help us serve in the present? Would you commit to serving God with your gifts at our church? Will you make church a greater priority in your life so that together we are united to do the work that God has called us to do? I've mentioned three ways that I believe we need to build. Learning what the Bible says, worshiping together, being intentional about making new friends, let me ask, will you personally build? I'm not talking to someone else or the person sitting next to you. I'm asking you, will you commit to being part of what God is doing at our church? Will you make worshiping together a priority? Will you study the Bible carefully and will you sacrifice to spend time with other people who are part of this fellowship? Because church, I believe that if we humble ourselves under the word of God, if we seek him, he will bless us tremendously and we can't even imagine what he is about to do here. Let's pray.
Father, through your word and the person of the Holy Spirit, you have breathed life into the people of God from the moment that you sent the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago. By faith, we want to claim the same blessing, the same spirit. We want to trust you to work in our hearts, to deepen our love for you, and to build our fellowship. And God, I pray that it would be full of joy. I ask that you would do this work, that you would lead us to a deeper commitment, to a greater work. And I pray that you do it through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find my power and thine alone. And chance leper spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him. left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow and when before the throne I stand in him complete Jesus died my soul to save my lips shall still repeat Jesus paid it all Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever comes to God must first believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. 
Hang on to the hope that God rewards us as we seek him through Christ Jesus. And I want to leave you with these verses from the end of Hebrews. Chapter 13 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.